Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we, as we consider your word, this word that you have recorded by the hand of Luke, through the inspiration of your spirit, that your son, as the head of the church, has sovereignly given to his body for our building up. We pray, Father, as we consider it, your spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we would, we would be greatly encouraged and edified. Pray for those who are not believing who are here. Father, that as we walk through your word and as we talk about what your son has to say, what your scripture says about him, that unbelievers would see their need for him, turn to him and be saved. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been trying um, to help shape an understanding of the Lord's Supper in my last two sermons. Last week we had a little break because Brooks Buser was here uh, talking about missions, but in the two before that I talked about uh, the Lord's Supper, and I talked about two reasons as to why we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace. The first sermon, I covered the first reason, which is that we're looking back at what Christ has done at the cross. So the first reason we take it weekly is so we can look back and remember what Christ did at the cross for us. The second week, I talked about the second reason we take it weekly, or the, which is that we are presently fellowshipping with Christ by His Spirit, presently fellowshipping with Christ by His Spirit, and having our faith nourished by Him or built up. It's the second reason we take it. So not only are we looking back and remembering what Christ has done on the cross, we are presently communing with him, having fellowship with him, and so being built up by him, by his spirit. And I hope those two have been helpful for you. I, I know that I, as I've studied the to this topic myself, I have been having my own thoughts sharpened, and I've even been convicted about my need to be clearer about how we guard the Lord's table out of love for the church and the honor of Christ. Now, now I, I want you to hear what I just said. I, I, did, did you hear what I just said? I have recognized, as I've studied and prepared to teach this, I have recognized error in my own practice as a pastor in guarding the Lord's Supper. I hope to show you what that error is today, um, as I wrap up this series with the third reason that we take the Lord's Supper weekly at Sovereign Grace. 
So, so what, is, what is the third reason we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace? The third reason is this. Because it promises Jesus' consummated kingdom to us. Do you hear this? So we aren't, we aren't just looking back and remembering what Jesus has done for us in love at the cross, nor are we just looking presently at his fellowshipping with us and pouring out blessings on us, but we are also looking forward to what he promises he will do for us at his return. In fact, I would argue that not only is the Lord's Supper reminding us of this and picturing this, but all of the corporate worship service that we gather for as believers is to have those three aspects, if you will, a looking back and remembering what Jesus has done at the cross, a present communing and fellowshipping with Christ by his spirit as he pours out his blessings to us through his word, through song, through prayer, through the Lord's Supper, through baptism, etc., and a looking forward to the return of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom, our blessed hope. Worship service has all those aspects, and so does the Lord's Supper. Look with me at Luke 22 so we can get at this third aspect in verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As Jesus is beginning the Passover meal with the disciples, if you look at verse 15, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. As he's beginning to eat this Passover meal with the disciples and telling them he earnestly desires to eat it with them, he actually makes a statement, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and it says in verse 17, and he took a cup and when he given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Now that cup is likely what they would call the first cup of the Passover meal. It's a different cup than the cup that you see um, down in verse 20. Look there. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten. He takes another cup, which is the third cup they normally ate at the Passover meal, saying, so this one is the first one, but it's at the Passover. I will not eat it with you again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Not, not just that the Lord's Supper, but even the Passover is fulfilled because the, the Lord's Supper is, in a sense, picturing that Christ is fulfilling at the cross the Passover and that the Lord's Supper, every time we take it, is pushing us forward to the consummation of the kingdom, which means that the Passover itself was pushing us forward, not just looking back, but the Jews were looking forward to the new creation that's consummated. In the kingdom of God. They're looking forward to that at the Passover. And Jesus is saying, as I'm fulfilling that Passover meal in the cross, I'm giving you a picture that not only looks back, but that looks forward. Until I come again. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So now as we try to understand what this text is saying, it's important that I provide you with some general understanding of the Passover. The Jews took the Passover every year in the city of Jerusalem as a remembrance of the Lord leading them out of Egypt during the Exodus and as a looking forward to the new creation. 
And if you remember the story, the Jews were in slavery in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. And the Lord redeemed them from captivity in Egypt by sending the angel of the Lord to strike down the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. And the Jews were commanded to gather in their houses to slaughter a lamb and to put its blood on the doorposts. They were also commanded to eat the lamb, to drink wine, and to eat unleavened bread. And they were supposed to do this all while getting ready to go. In other words, they were supposed to eat the bread in haste. They were supposed to be continually readying themselves during that meal to go. Because when the Passover came, they were to immediately leave Egypt. The angel of the Lord passed over every house which had the blood of the lamb on the door. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12. Keep your hand in Luke 22. And let's look at the beginning of this, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And in all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. I'm going to stop there. So the Jews were to keep this feast, this meal, annually as a remembrance of the Lord redeeming them and saving them from Egypt. And what's happening in the passage where we are in Luke 22 is that they have gathered for this feast. If you look up to verse, verse 1 of chapter 22, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near. That seven days of that week they were supposed to clean all the leaven out of their houses for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover. Notice what it goes on, drew near, which is called the Passover. Verse 7, 
Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So together to celebrate the Lord bringing them salvation from Egypt as they look to God's promise to deliver them from the fallen creation into a new creation. They're together to celebrate the fact that the Lord redeemed them from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb and that the Lord cut a covenant with them in blood, which we read about in Exodus 24. And Jesus is saying that the Passover Lamb is a type. You have types and you have anti-types. You know what a type is? A type is a type of something, right? Pointing to its fulfillment. It's a picture, a sign, if you will, pointing forward to something which fulfills it. And there's a keep this. Jesus is saying the Passover lamb is a type pointing to him as the ultimate lamb of God who causes God's wrath to pass over all who trust in him and his shed blood, shed blood for their sins. So you put that blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of the Lord passes over and doesn't kill the firstborn. And you remember that because that's how you were freed from slavery to Egypt. And you're looking forward to a new creation. What Jesus is saying is, as you remember that, I want you to know that as we gather to remember that, I fulfill that Passover lamb. I am the Passover lamb. I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. It's because of my shed blood that the wrath of God will pass over you. And he's saying, I'm fulfilling it. The Exodus event is a type itself pointing to Jesus as the one who brings us out of slavery and exile and who's carrying us into a new creation. And here, as Jesus is announcing a new covenant, a covenant which he is the lamb that is slain for for their redemption and salvation, a covenant cut on the cross in Jesus' blood, it is here that Jesus is making a promise of a future kingdom to them and to us. Yes, in one sense, Jesus' kingdom is already ours, right? We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are co-heirs with Christ. Husbands, in 1 Peter 3, you're to treat your wife as a co-heir of the grace of life. The kingdom is already ours in one sense. But the kingdom is also not yet. It's also future in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. So it's ours in one sense in that it belongs to us. But it's also not yet in the sense that it isn't fulfilled until Jesus returns. That's when it's consummated. That's why Jesus tells him twice, I won't eat this with you until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God comes. This is a promise that he's making here in the midst of the Lord's Supper. As he's instituting this ordinance that we take every week, he's making a promise. He's making a promise. See, when he says, I'm excited to eat this with you because I won't get to eat it with you again until the kingdom of God, what's the promise inherent in that statement? I will eat it with you again in the kingdom of God. One day, these men will again, these disciples who had to have been distressed over the fact that Jesus is saying he'll never eat a meal with them again, not until then. Had to have been distressed over that. He's saying to them, one day you'll again experience the kind of deep fellowship around the table with me that you experience now. And that celebratory meal, it'll never end. Jesus promising to us that one day we will know true, 
face-to-face intimacy with him around the table in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't understand the significance of what the Lord's Supper promises us for the future. I want to provide you with two biblical propositions. Are you ready? I want to give you lenses that I want you to put on as we look at some passages of Scripture together. So first, I'm going to give you these two lenses, and then I want to look at these passages of Scripture together with those two lenses firmly in place. So here's the first lens. You ready for it? Okay, here it is. Because you need to have this lens to read the Bible properly. Here's what it is. Covenant signs, covenant signs like the Lord's Supper, like baptism, etc., including the new covenant sign of the Lord's Supper, all covenant signs, including this one, promise blessings and warn of curses. Ready? All covenant signs promise blessings and warn of curses. Throughout the Bible, God gives covenants which have both blessings and cursings atta- or curses attached to them. These covenants are relational arrangements through which God will bless you or curse you. Let, let me give you an example. He essentially says to Adam what? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll receive eternal life. There's the blessing, the promise of a blessing. Eat from it, and you will die. There's the warning of a curse. He basically says to Abraham, keep my covenant of circumcision in Genesis 17, and you will be blessed. Break this covenant, and you will receive a curse. He told Moses that he will bless those who keep his covenant, and he will curse those who do not. So covenants are generally given with the promise of blessings and the warnings of curses. Further, God also attached signs to the covenants he makes. He gave Noah, for example, the rainbow as a sign that God will not forget his covenant promise to never destroy the world by flood. But he will again destroy the world, just not by flood. He gave Abraham circumcision as a sign that God will not forget his promise. He gave Moses Passover as a sign of his covenant. He gave us baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs of the new covenant. These covenant signs, like the covenants they picture, often promise blessings and warn of curses. It's true with the new covenant. Those who are false professors in the church, you hear that? False professors in the church are warned and if we're among them, we will be cursed. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Keep your hand on Luke 22. Or actually, you don't need to because we're going to go to 1 Corinthians from here. But look at Hebrews chapter 10. And, and by the way, I can go over these same warnings in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 6 and likely in John chapter 15, etc. But I'm just going to Focus on one passage here, Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to look at verse 26. Here the author of the Hebrews is warning the church. He's teaching the church. And he wants them not only to be encouraged, but if there are any false professors among them, to be warned. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what are they talking about? They're not saying, once you hear about Jesus, if you ever sin, Jesus hasn't paid for that and you're going to hell. That's not the point. It's talking about the condition of the person who says to themselves, I heard about Jesus, 
and I'm going to continue in a life of sin as opposed to a life of repentance. Understand the distinction there? Christians are not those who never sin. They're those who are constantly repentant. And this is a person who's deliberately continuing in unrepentance. After hearing the gospel, they might have even walked down an aisle at a church or raised their hand or stood up or prayed a prayer a thousand times. But they never repented of their sin. They never turned from ungodliness and started to walk with the Lord. And he's warning them, false professors in the church, be warned. Your life, if it's not marked by repentance, it's not a Christian life. There is no sacrifice of sins for you. Go on, look what he says. But what is there, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, be warned, false professors. There are warnings to you, and those warnings actually are not just in the context of the new covenant. Those warnings actually are attached to the signs that we participate in in the new covenant. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because the sign, even of the Lord's Supper, warns us. It doesn't just promise us blessing, but it warns us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me show you first the promise of blessing in the sign. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the blessing in it. You're looking forward to his coming and you will eat this again with him in the kingdom. But here comes the curse. Whoever therefore, or the warning of the curse, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that word will be guilty, will be guilty is this idea of has profaned. Look, go on to verse 28 and 29. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is that word of unworthy man will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? That's the word profane. It's as if you've put him on the cross again. He says, examine yourself, be warned. Because if you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So that's the first lens I want you to put on. The first lens is that covenants include promises of blessings and warnings of curses. And they have signs attached to them like baptism and the Lord's Supper, which remind us of both. Baptism reminds us of both judgment and salvation. The Lord's Supper does the same. Now, for the second lens I want you to put on, here's the second lens. So the first lens is that. Here's the second lens. 
the lens, here's what it is, the analogy of betrothal and marriage in the new covenant. I want you to understand that there's, analogy, there's an analogy in the new covenant of betrothal and marriage. Now, why, why do I want you to understand that? When Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, he became betrothed to his bride. That's like what we would call engagement, although it's, it's much more heavy than engagement because when you have betrothal, you would actually have betrothal ceremony like our engagement, but to get out of betrothal, you had to divorce. Now, you didn't consummate there, right, the covenant. You hadn't even participated in the marriage or the wedding ceremony yet. You've just been betrothed, and now you're waiting for the wedding ceremony. It's, a, it's sort of like what we would call engagement, but very, much more serious. You guys follow me on that? You now belong to one another. The only way out is divorce, but you're still waiting for the wedding and the consummation. And for the sake of the children, I'll leave the word there. Here's the thing. You might think that this meal he's having with the apostles and that we take together every week, you might think of it as a kind of celebration of betrothal or engagement. He's saying, Jesus is saying, listen, you're betrothed to me as my bride, the church. And so you take this meal celebrating our betrothal, but when the wedding comes, then you'll participate in that meal at the consummation. When it, here, here's what would happen when they had a betrothal. What would occur is you'd have this ceremony in which the bride and the groom were betrothed, and then the groom would leave. And the bride never knew when the groom was coming back. You know that? She, he, he, she knows that he is coming back, but she doesn't know when. Now, this would drive some of you ladies nuts because the day he comes back is the wedding day. So how do you prepare when you don't know what day he's coming back? The day he arrives back in town, he as your groom has come to get you. That's now your wedding day. And so you don't want to look funky that day, right? And so what you're doing every day is preparing for that day. Think about the way a bride prepares on her wedding day. I mean, it's the most prepped a woman probably ever gets. Right? You think about how she prepares. Well, in betrothal, these brides were having to prepare that way every day, waiting for their husband, waiting for the groom to come. Because the day he comes in, the wedding happens, and the party occurs. That's what happened in the first century. The bride was to make herself ready every day for she never knew when her groom would return. And that's the state the church is in with Christ. We're his betrothed, waiting for the groom to return for a wedding day, preparing every day for that. Now, did I just make that up or did I get that from the Bible? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I, I want you to hear this language applied to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1 Paul says this, speaking to the Corinthian church who's running after other gospels, he says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but you're running off with other lovers is what he's going to get into. Rather than readying yourself as a pure virgin for the coming of your husband, church, that you've been betrothed to, what you're doing instead is running around 
whoring yourself out to other gods and gospels. But you've been betrothed to Christ. You belong to him. You should ready yourself for him. And this meal promises, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, it promises the bride, it promises Christ's church, that when the groom, Jesus, returns, we'll consummate the new covenant with the great wedding supper of the Lamb. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Go there, because I want you to see this coming of the groom fulfilled there. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. Here's John having a vision. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. See, this is why when we come together for worship every week, we take the Lord's Supper. Because we're looking forward to Jesus' promise of the kingdom of God. We are, if you will, participating in this meal in our betrothal period as we ready ourselves for the great wedding supper of the Lamb when he returns. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By the way, you will still proclaim the Lord's death after he comes. You will be forever in heaven praising the Lamb who was slain. But you're looking forward to that coming, that consummation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this meal is a looking back on the magnificent love he showed us in dying on the cross and cutting the new covenant's blood. It's a looking presently at Jesus' presence by his Spirit to bless us. And it's a looking forward to the promise he made to us to return and bring us the kingdom. And we need him to come. We don't just want him to come. We need him to. His coming to bring us, he is coming to bring us this great wedding meal, and that's our hope. The world and the flesh and the devil, I, I want you to understand this. The world and the flesh and the devil will eat your lunch every day. You understand that? You know what that means by eat your lunch? You, know, you, ever, you ever been bullied by a bully? They come and they pick on you and they take your lunch away and eat it. Okay? Well, the world, the flesh, and the devil will take your lunch away from you and eat it. Every day. They will kick your tail. If we are not constantly brought to this meal and reminded that Jesus paid it all. That there is great hope. That all suffering and distress comes to an end with the glorious return of Christ. So we take the Lord's Supper every week at Sovereign Grace because we def desperately need to be reminded of Christ's love for us at the cross because we need Christ to be present with us now by his spirit nourishing our faith and because we look forward to Christ's promise to, to us that he will return and make all things new. You guys follow the three aspects there? I hope they're simple and clear. The three aspects of the meal are looking back in remembrance, a present communion with Christ, 
and a looking forward in hope. And now that you have these two lenses, if you will, of covenant signs and promise, uh, covenant signs promising blessings or curse, curses, and of taking the Lord's Supper as the betrothed of Christ, looking forward to his return in the great marriage supper of the Lamb, or wedding supper of the Lamb. Now that you have those lenses, I want to show you some passages that drive home the seriousness of all this. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I hit on the seriousness some as I showed you 1 Corinthians 11. I want to just drive that home a little further in the seriousness of all this. As Jesus teaching in the Olivet Discourse, he gives some parables. One of the parables is the parable of the ten virgins. Un- with the lenses I just gave you, this parable will help you, will, it will help you understand this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven, verse 1 of chapter 25 of Matthew, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who tr- took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In other words, five of them were not preparing. Five of them were preparing. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Don't you hear this? Not, you didn't do enough good works. I don't know you. And it's demonstrated I don't know you by the fact that you never lived as someone in fellowship with me. And if I had saved you and known you by my spirit, you know what you would have been doing? You would have been preparing for me. Your lack of preparation is just a picture of the fact that I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Hear the warning to the church? Better watch. You don't know when he's coming. Those who are betrothed are constantly preparing for the coming of the groom. I'm not saying that they never fall asleep. Even in this passage, they do. I'm saying they're readying themselves. That's the general direction of their life. This has implications for the way you approach the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is for those who are continually trusting in Christ and repenting of sin. Look at Revelation 19 again. I want to go back to that picture and just drive that home a little bit more. Revelation 19. Try to wrap some things here with this. I want you to pay attention to something that we can quickly read over in this passage if we're going too quickly, and then, and then we don't read the rest of the passage in context, which includes quite the warning. Verse 7 of Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and what has his bride done? 
She has made herself ready. Now notice how she did that. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How is she making herself ready? By walking in good works. Now, how can she possibly walk in good works on her own? She can't. Look what the passage says. It's been granted to her to clothe herself. This is not talking about justification. Justification is that Jesus dresses you in his own pure white vestments takes off your dirty rags and puts on his pure white vestments. It's not talking about that. What this is talking about is that those who do know him, those who are a part of the bride, are those who are walking in holiness, walking in good works, which he's granted to us to do. Because when the power of God's grace comes to save you, he doesn't just forgive you and declare you righteous. His spirit regenerates you and gives you new life and causes you to want to walk according to his law. So don't limit the power of the gospel of grace to merely paying the penalty for your sins. It does that, and that's glorious and good, but it also empowers you to walk in holiness. And it promises to you that one day you'll be removed from the presence of sin. Grace is much better than just justification. And don't get me wrong, I don't say that to diminish justification. I say that to exalt the power of Christ. And what he's saying here is, those who have been clothed with Christ are also those who have been granted the power to clothe themselves, making themselves ready for the coming of the groom. And they're blessed when he comes to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what's amazing is the warning that comes next. By the way, let me, let me, let me talk about that one thing real quick, because I, I want you to hear this is not just from this narrative, but from Paul. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For, hear that? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. He gave them to us, granted them to us, that we should walk in them. Now, let's look at the warning. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. Because there's two meals in this passage. There's the great wedding supper of the Lamb, but there's another meal in this passage. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped or dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. In other words, he's going to gather all of these people that he's cut to pieces and put them in a winepress. You know what that looks like? It's like grapes. And then he's going to stomp on them and tread the winepress of the wrath of God. This imagery all comes out of the Old Testament. It's incredibly graphic. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is not the painting of Jesus in most people's houses, is it? But to hear the warning here, you're either going to be the bride making herself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you're either going to meet, eat, you're going to either eat at the great meal, wedding supper of the Lamb, or you are going to be eaten at the great supper of God. You're either going to be at the meal or you're going to be the meal. Understand that? There's both a promise of blessing and a warning of curses. You will eat the Lord's Supper or you will be eaten at the great supper of God. Jesus, through John, is warning the church. Jesus will save those who believe and those who believe have their faith adorned with good works as they ready themselves for his return. But Jesus is also warning the false professors among them that God's judgment is coming upon them and the Lord is not to be trifled with. The Lord's Supper is a sign of the new covenant and we are to take it with joy and with seriousness. My concern with how we approach these signs is that we too often fear importing too much weight into them because we fear a kind of ritualism or sacramentalism that exists in Roman Catholicism. But I I want you to understand that while we should guard from that kind of thing, let's not devalue the importance of these ordinances. Let's not demean them below their biblical place. Now, I fear that I have ignorantly participated in devaluing these ordinances through not vigorously guarding the table. See, see there, I, I want you to hear what I just said. I fear that I have ignorantly participated in devaluing the Lord's Supper by not vigorously guarding the Lord's table. Because there are implications to all this for how we participate in the Lord's Supper together. What, what are they? I just want to give you four quick. I'm not going to try to define them biblically for you. Most of them are obvious. I just want you to hear them. Don't even need to write them down. The fourth one, though, I'm going to spend time on next week. I want you to hear why. Because the first three you'll go, oh, yeah, of course. The fourth one you'll go, say what? Okay, so I'll preach a sermon on that next week. All right? <laughs> Lisa, you're laughing, and I'm thinking about, what you talking about, Willis? You guys remember that, different strokes? All right, okay. Let me give you four quick implications regarding the table. One, don't take it if you're not a believer. That's at least the first and most obvious implication. If you are not someone presently trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then don't partake of the Lord's Supper. You're warned not to 
participate in it if you do not recognize the body and blood of the Lord. Second, don't take the Lord's Supper if you're an unrepentant sin. That's why we offer time to confess your sin every week at the beginning of the service. If you aren't ready to confess and turn from your sin and to walk in good works which God has given you to walk in, then don't take the Lord's Supper. Don't come in here and try to come to the table while you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Don't come in here and come to the table while you're unrepentantly, continuously looking at pornography. Don't come in here and try to participate in the Lord's Supper while you are unrepentantly and continuously separated from and pursuing divorce from your spouse for unbiblical reasons. There's a lot of things I could list. But if you are not repenting, don't come to the Lord's table. Now, now what does it take to get there? It's a moment. You should be able to come in every week, hear the word of the Lord and say, I repent. I ask your forgiveness. I confess my sins to you. I know that this offends you, Lord. And I trust in your son alone. And I need help walking in holiness with you. And I'm turning from these works and pursuing your son. And so I come to the Lord's table clinging to your son and the grace in him. You don't have to walk away from here and spend the week walking in good works in order to come here. You have to make the decision to turn from your sins, confess in the Lord, and look to him for forgiveness, and then you take the Lord's Supper. Third, don't take the Lord's Supper if you're in conflict with a believer which you haven't attempted by every way possible on your side to reconcile. In other words, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I'm not saying if you're in an unreconciled relationship, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. I'm saying if you're in an unreconciled relationship, which you have not done your level best to reconcile, don't take the Lord's Supper. If you're in an unreconciled relationship because you refuse to seek forgiveness and to forgive your neighbor or your brother, then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. That's the context of the warnings in 1 Corinthians 11. Disunity in the body. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 when he says, listen, if you, if, you, if you have something against your brother, don't come to the altar and offer your gifts till you go and reconcile with him. Those three aren't particularly surprising to people. Here's the one that's, that's going to be the shocker for many of you because it's not something we tend to talk about in the contemporary church. Don't take the Lord's Supper. Now, now, I want you to hear the whole sermon next week before you judge me, okay? And then after that, if you hate me and want to write me nasty notes, do that, okay? That's fine, but just give me a shot next week. I'm going to put it out there today. Don't take the Lord's Supper if you're not a member in good standing in a biblically sound local church. For you are not in union with the local church, and you are not under leadership and accountability in a local church. Whether you were excommunicated or you self-excommunicated doesn't really matter. This meal is for those who are members of the local church in communion with Christ and one another. Now, the first three implications are obvious right there on the surface of the text. This fourth one is not as obvious on the surface of the text, but I think it is obvious biblically. So I'm going to deal with, that, with the question of the Lord's Supper and church membership next week. 
In other words, I don't want you just to take my word for it. I expect you, if you've never heard that before or are surprised by that or never seen the biblical evidence for that, to think to yourself, has that preacher lost his mind? That's okay. Can he prove that in the text? You better show me in the Bible because we say this is our final authority and you say that, so don't just make implication comments and move on. Show me in the text. So that's my burden for next week. You should all be here for it. All right. With that said, let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that uh, you would help us to take the Lord's Supper with some sense of seriousness and weightiness and with a sense of joy. That we would understand that, that you are not a God to be trifled with. That you are the holy Lord of all things who loved us, who saved his son and sent his son and gave him for us to save us. Who gave us a picture in the Lord's Supper, a sign of what Jesus did for us on the cross. The fact that he presently communes with us to strengthen our faith by his spirit. Of great hope we have looking forward to the return of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb in which the new covenant will be finally consummated, which all things will be made new, to live in joy with him forever. Father, I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and minds, that we would take this joyfully, seriously, with great thanks to your Son with great hope looking forward to his coming and with the knowledge that he is here by his spirit nourishing our faith, fellowshipping with us as his church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.